UX for Health 4.0. Pretty interesting. I would like now to introduce the two speakers of the panelists. So now we'll do like an awesome work again in facilitating the, the next uh, panel. So we have Clifton Evans and Mark Quester. I hope I pronounce everybody's name. Quester. 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 Okay. Pavel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mark Quester. So Clifton Evans est un professionnel de la recherche et du design qui a travaillé avec de nombreuses entreprises internationales, des gouvernements, des centres de recherche et des petites et moyennes entreprises en Europe et en Amérique du Nord. He's a founding member of the, US, of the User Experience, so UX, Information Architecture, and Interaction Design Communities, who was part of many industry forming discussions, including voting in, on terms such as UX and IXD. I'm looking forward to know what IXD is. A leader and practitioner in research and design across the web. Interaction design. Interaction. Sorry? Interaction experience and design. Oh, interaction. Okay, thank you, Nam. Uh, is a leader and practitioner in research and design across the web and app industry since the early days in the 90s. So probably where before I was born. Interesting. The second uh, panelist is Mark Quester. I think I got that right. Mark is an experienced technical consultant, project, product manager, entrepreneur and developer. Avec un mélange de compétences en programmation et en sciences des données, il apporte une expérience pratique à la conception à la construction et au lancement de produits technologiques en ligne pour le web et les programmes de formation mobile et hors ligne, ainsi qu'à la gestion des événements. It, increasingly, his personal and professional focus is on data-driven products with an interest in health tech, healthcare, and wellness space. He rests regularly at www.markwk.com about self-tracking, technology, personal development, and data. Mark Wester and Clifton Evans Welcome, and I hand it over the mic. Thank you, Marie. <laughs> awesome. So Mark is right now in Los Angeles, and Clifton is in Dublin, Ireland. So this is fun. Uh, Woohoo! And uh, you can see another part of my house with another painting in the background. I don't know what it is. It came with the house. Uh, because I have internet issues in different parts of my house. So I'm moving around with the laptop. Um, Clifton and I have worked on a on a project together five years oh how many years i don't know a few years ago i forget how many years ago a few years ago and uh mark was introduced to me by shabnam so thank you and as i said interoperability is important so mark and clifton both use different softwares and they've sent me their files in different formats and <laughs> i'm fine with it give me a second to again toggle the screen share so that you can go and i think mark you're going first and then followed by clifton is that right sure awesome guys Oh, you're sharing your screen? Okay, yeah, you can do that, right? I guess I got confused. Uh, I burned Kareem, though. <laughs> okay, fine. So, yeah. See, Kareem, you, you spoiled everybody now. I want you my know? freedom. I want my freedom. This is a community of freedom, right? <laughs> you know, that's why I never bothered anybody, because I knew that if I do that, everybody will rebel. So, anyways, I'm shutting up now. <laughs> um, how much time do I have, just so we, we, we don't waste time? Okay, each of you have, like, around... 25 to 30 minutes, cool. because we have one more presentation. The keynote by Professor El Sadiq, who's here, the father of Digital Twins, also my supervisor. So yeah, so you have 30 minutes each. And this panel is different. I'm not going around asking questions. Every panel was different. Um, so this panel is different. So off to you. Cool. Yeah. Hey, um, super happy to join everybody here. Um, let me just make sure I can get my video so I don't, I don't be staring at the... Uh, uh, in the space. But yeah, super great pleasure to join all of you on this amazing uh, leadership summit around Health 4.0. The idea of, you know, citizen science that Kareem talked about is exciting. The idea of how do we manage cybersecurity. And I think for me, the big question um, as a product designer and product developer is, you know, where, where does the user fit? Um, and so today I'm going to talk about building transformational apps from a UX and product perspective. Um, yeah, and then I'm gonna pass it on to Clifton who's gonna share a couple of other aspects. So we're gonna kind of have a little bit of a fusional talk between kind of more of my high level and a couple of case studies. And then he's gonna dig into the questions that we were talking about before around emotional detection, um, et cetera. All right, let me see if we're still good. Um, like uh, Kareem said, I'm a huge fan of open source. 
Um, and so I also have all my slides that are online. You can find them on my GitHub. Um, and I've just made a couple of check, check changes in the last few minutes. Um, so I think I want to start with this kind of quote that I, I unfortunately I wasn't able to join the morning sessions to kind of get the, the you know, the way you guys framed health 4.0. But I think we can all agree that health um, in the framework we're looking at it is is from this different kind of definition. This is not about the absence of disease or um, a, a form of sickness. Really what it's all about is this ability to adapt and self-manage and in multiple dimensions, both in the physical, the mental, and the social. Um, and largely what we're trying to explore is how do we use technology? How do we use these communities of practices to bring to, a, um, bring to the market products and services and solutions that help to kind of bridge this new version of what we expect out of health in the future. Um, just, you know, I don't think I need to over explain. I got a really great introduction about me. I work as a product consultant. I build products. I work with different companies and startups to both design, um, research, implement, and deploy um, solutions and products. Um, increasingly, I build products around health and wellness, um, work part-time as a data scientist, and I also run a uh, acceleration program here in LA called Startup Boost. Um, in our last batch um, that we're just finishing, we had one startup doing um, a life sciences around a unique biomarker, um, et cetera. Um, you can find me online. I'm pretty easy to Google. Um, the way you pronounce my name, which is difficult, and maybe I should make it easier, is Mark Custer. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. And most of my stories and thinking is all in my blog, which focuses on self-tracking and the quantified self, and you know, increasingly about this idea of open source data-driven health self. Um, so today I'm gonna to talk about a couple of different things, but mainly what I wanna share is this my journey, first into digital health and the quantified self. I'll give you a quick high-level introduction to UX and product principles. Um, I'll then talk about two sort of um, use cases of products that I've built that are data user-centric apps. Um, I can't talk about all of them. Some of them are under NDAs, but these are two that I think can give you a couple of high-level ideas around how, we, how I approach as a, a product designer and product manager building apps. Um, and then I wanna sort of talk about at the end, the idea of transformative health and health 4.0. Um, basically what I think um, is that we're not really just building apps to solve solutions. What we're trying to do is sort of take our selves and our patients on these journeys of health and wellness. Um, and this is one of the important dynamics we need to sort of um, create these products for because consumers are not just looking for a doctor to tell them something, they're looking to take an active role um, as, as part of their self-care and their self-management over time. Um, so let me start by introducing sort of my journey into digital health and the quantified self. Um, so Barring me sort of putting up this, this fat picture of myself, in a few years ago, um, in 2014, 2015, I was just stressed out. You know, I had gotten this amazing job. I was working in China, developing this amazing entrepreneurship program, growing, getting investors, having lots and lots of stuff happening. But physically, I was stressed out. I was not flourishing. I was not sleeping. Um, I was not in great shape with my relationships. I was just sort of getting by. Um, but that year sort of changed something for me. And I think a lot of you probably have that moment in time when you touch technology or use a product that allowed you to sort of take ownership about what's happening in your body and in your health journey. And for me, 2015 was when I started doing some form of life tracking. I got my first um, Fitbit, you know, one of these old little zip, and that enabled me to start quantifying my steps. And from there, you know, I mean, Kareem is probably one step above me, but I've got also a number of devices I use to quantify myself. And this sort of allows me to, to sort of approach my journey. Um, the other thing I learned was all about productivity and time management. Basically, I learned that we need to have a mental model for how we approach, um, how we look at technology and how we look at our lives. Um, and a few years later, things started to shift. I became more creative, more active and flourishing. Um, and I think one of the things that I took away from my life uh, was by tracking things, by using these consumer tracking devices, I was able to sort of frame my goals and my health in a way that I could start to take progressive actions. 
I would track something and then I would take action and see these changes over time. How sleep contributed to an, an ability to be more creative. How regular exercise allowed me to have sort of better emotional regulation and things like that. Um, and for me, a lot of this journey into better health and self started with the quantified self. Um, and I know that's not exactly the core of Health 4.0, but it's definitely one of the aspects that resonates with me. Um, and there's a lot of different definitions about the quantified self. But for me, I define the quantified self as the idea of measuring or documenting something about yourself in order to gain meaning or make improvements. Um, in a short version, basically, we find a way to collect data about ourselves in order to understand ourselves and to improve ourselves. And I think this sort of central aspect of, of being an active part of your health or your productivity is really important to both you know, the quantified self as well as what we're trying to imagine in this uh, health 4.0 space. Um, among the other things that I've been trying to figure out around the uh, quantified self space is I've created this mind map about all of the possible um, iter iter iterations and services. And I found that, you know, as I've spent the number of years sort of researching and writing and mapping out the space of the quantified self, it becomes clearer and clearer to me that not only, you know, when we find things to track our productivity or sensors that allow us to monitor our environment or health or all of these things, what we're starting to see is this idea that the data needs to be brought together and made useful in some ways. I mean, this is increasingly what I think about as a, a product manager. It's not just enough to have something to track. We must ultimately start to think about what are the actual user problems or the health problems we're trying to solve. Um, and it's also led me to this interesting question that I find quite surprising. Why do we track our lives? I can almost guarantee in a group like this that a number of you have tracked some aspect of your health. It could be a more traditional thing like getting blood tests, or it could be like um, the idea of brain monitoring, or it could be a wearable, or it could be continuous blood glucose monitors. But really the, the question I sort of wonder is why do we track our lives? Um, and for me, one of the things that motivates me about tracking my life is that it can be used as a feedback loop towards taking um, dedicated actions and informed decisions. There's some interesting research that looked at the quantified self-space and self-tracking and interestingly, among you know, all of the people that, that are out there tracking, one of the principal motivations, you know, besides you know, entertaining yourself or being part of a group, a number of people are driven to track their lives around the goal of self-healing. Um, and I think this is not surprising if we think about the number of chronic diseases that sort of face our societies. People have diseases that you know, are going to be with them for a long, long time. And so what we're trying to do is to find a way to use tracking and data and sort of lifestyle adjustments to sort of get through that over time. Um, and we can dig more into that in the Q&A, um, but I think this is an important question when we think about the Health 4.0, is the idea of getting people to be an active tracker or at least an actively engaged in their data around their health. Um, and so for me, it's just to sort of finish this sort of aspect about how I got into the quantified self and got into building um, you know, digital health products, some of the lessons I've learned is that I think both personally and sort of in the consumers we work with, health is a journey. Um, it's something that people are going to be on their entire lives. And we need to build products and services and approaches that frame health as a journey. It's not a one and done. You don't just have a magical pill and it solves all, all these things. We have to embrace the fact that progressive little changes change us. Um, when we take on more stress, that can be both a good thing and a bad thing. And I think realizing that in myself also informs heavily how I approach building products going forward. Um, and this sort of leads to sort of one important point that I think as designers, medical professionals, and technologists, uh, we don't just need to tell our patients or tell our users what they need. What we need to do is empower our users to become act actors in their health journeys. And I think the Health 4.0, this idea of turning us towards preventative health also forces us to turn towards thinking about that health is not all about the physician practitioner role. It's about us becoming a kind of actor in our own health in, in a way that we become informed enough and data-driven enough to be somewhat of our own um, doctor or at least our own kind of informed medical um, decision maker. So now if we would just sort of switch gears and think about 
the UX and the product space. I just want to give you a couple of key ideas and then we'll jump into the, uh, the specific aspects of a couple of different products. So for just to keep this all on the same page, user experience is defined as the entire experience and interactions we have around a product or experience. So as product UX designers, we're designing all of the touch points that a user has with the product in order to solve some sort of problem. Um, and this all comes out of this important movement in the 1990s by Donald Norman called human or user-centric design. Um, and the big sort of turning point of human-centric design is that we should build products around actual people. Um, it's not really about teaching people to use products. It's about creating an experience um, that this product is for people. Um, and when we change this sort of framework, we don't think about the disease or we don't think about the technology, but we think about the user. This fundamentally changes um, the, the solutions we, we create and as well as the processes we take to create those solutions. And just sort of share one kind of quote that I like. Um, Donald Norman says, human-centered design is a philosophy, not a precise set of methods, but one that assumes that innovations start by getting close to users and by observing their activities. What resonates with me in human-centric design is the idea that we are going through iterative cycles um, and there's no sort of answer for how we solve things. In fact, the more cycles we take and the more people we bring, we're going to find different ways of solving that problem. But most important is that we stay, um, keep users at the center of these questions. Because frankly, products should solve user problems. For as exciting as it is to thinking about the science and the data and the wearables and all this stuff, ultimately we need to be oriented around solving our users' problems. Um, and sort of the question is, you know, when we're solving these problems, we're creating something that's not just um, a solution, but also is intuitive. Users can go to it and start using it in a way that makes sense to them. Um, and I think increasingly what I find both the aspect of intuitive, meaning that we want to create a product that's easy to use at the beginning. We also need to create products that have the ability to enable skilled practice. Um, and I think this is an interesting challenge to the idea that we want to make simple products. And a lot of times, you know, as designers, we want to say, okay, let's make a product that's simple, easy to use. At the same time, when we're approaching things that are complex, complex adaptive systems, you know, our health and our healthcare systems, are extremely complicated. We need to enable not just the intuitive use of those tools, but something like a, a highly skilled expert practice. Um, and so I think about these um, electronic health record tools that allow us to dig deep, to do drill downs, to allow different sort of interactions with that data point. Um, and I find this to be an interesting challenge because we, we not only wanna make the, the service sort of self-explanatory, but over time allows people to get a enriching and an, an, an interesting experience of skilled practice with those tools and products. Um, and just to share a couple of, of important principles in UX. One of the first principles I think of UX and as well as something for a community like this is we need to consider our assumptions. Um, a lot of times when we go into building a product or thinking about building a product, we sort of assume the solution is already sort of so obvious. Um, but one of the things I find in, in doing UX work and customer discovery is that your assumptions are a good starting point, but we need to spend the time validating them. Um, and I think one of the things we need to own in sort of a, a, a space like this um, is that these assumptions need to be challenged. Uh, we need to just not just assume them as our base point. And these assumptions need to be challenged by talking to our, our real users. And this is sort of the core of how I operate as a product designer and a product manager is talk to users. Um, and I'll go through this in a couple of examples shortly, but the core of UX is talking to customers regularly, um, both early on when we're in the discovery stage and later when we have prototypes. Um, and this is sort of the other key principle of most kind of UX and product design work. We need to build something that's a minimal viable product to try to see if it works, um, to see if it resonates, to see if it fits with all of our stakeholders. The other sort of key aspect of UX is we test and validate. Um, there's a number of ways we do this. Uh, we could do a user test where we build a product. We then do some different tests to see if they can complete their tasks. The other way is increasingly we use different kinds of analytical tools. You know, we launch a feature on a website or an app and we see how um, the essential thing, though, is that 
what we're building is, is something that we test and validate over and over again. Uh, we avoid building products anymore where we just say, oh, I know it, I know all the requirements. In fact, what we do is we try to build this step-by-step. Step. We test these individual aspects. We try to validate our assumptions, et cetera. Um, and this all gets pack packaged together in what's called iterative design. We check our assumptions, we talk to users, we build prototypes, and then we validate. And we do this over and over again in these kind of uh, rinse and repeat um, aspects of, of the UX um, iterative design process. Um, and we can go more about that you know, in detail if you want, but I sort of wanted to use those as our framing point. The, the important thing to remember in UX is we talk to customers, we validate using prototypes, and then we keep going back over and over again until we think we've got a good fit of, of sort of a, a product market fit, um, a product that fits the users that we need and is going to resonate to solve their actual problem. Um, before we sort of jump into the, the, the use cases that I wanna talk about, there's a couple of unique challenges, I think, for building products um, in the healthcare space. And I, I think this is something we could spend hours and hours and hours in talking about, um, but one that really kind of resonates with me when I think about building um, health products because oftentimes I'm building products that are consumer facing. Um, I miss out on, on kind of realizing the importance that healthcare doesn't happen in just one place. It doesn't happen in the doctor's office. It doesn't happen in the nurse's station. It doesn't happen in one place. In fact, it happens across an entire ecosystem, um, what I like to call an ecosystem of care. Um, and one of the, the hard challenges of designing for products in such a complex environment is there's so many different moving parts. Um, and one of the reasons why I think a lot of healthcare products fail or have you know, poor design is this failure to realize that we need to design and think about users in multiple places. You know, humor-centric design often wants us to sort of revert to say, oh, patient-centric. But the reality is we need to consider a bunch of different stakeholders. Um, yeah, and this sort of reiterates my second point is that we need to integrate multiple users' perspectives and stakeholders. This is typically why it takes so much longer for a health app to get to see um, the light of day, because we need to not only consider what the patient needs, but we need to consider different doctors in different spaces and different stakeholders. It could be insurance and all of these things. Um, this sort of adds a lot of baggage and a lot of different um, considerations when we build a product. Um, I think we also have to admit that one of the challenges in healthcare for UX and product development is that the healthcare space really hasn't embraced IT or design as heavily as other industries. Um, you know, the fact that we can go and use our phone to order, um, you know, food to be delivered to my house so easily, or I can go and order a, uh, a hotel or an Airbnb just through an app, all of these sort of ease of use has not kind of gone into the healthcare system. And I think we would all realize this comes largely from the bureaucratic kind of aspect and the uh, ingrainment. Um, and I think the, uh, the other interesting things that I notice is, you know, when, when I talk about that I do, you know, product and design for healthcare, and when I go to these meetups, it's pretty rare to ever meet another designer in the, in the, in the healthcare space. So in spite of having this huge need for designers and UX in healthcare, there's just not that many people that are, that are doing it as we kind of need. All right, well, let me just jump through two different stories about building um, data and user-centric apps. Um, just real quickly to sort of share. Unfortunately, I can't share some of the, the proprietary apps I'm working on, but these are some good ones that we can share to give you an idea of how we approach building products from the user-centric mindset. Um, and so one of the products I've been working on for a number of years is called Biomarker Tracker. Um, and the idea of Biomarker was that we would try to find a way to take these blood test results and make them actionable and useful to sort of the, the patient themselves. Um, so the problem statement as we see it is that, you know, you go get your blood tested, you get a report back um, that's oftentimes in this weird table format and you're just not really sure what to do with this. You know, if you're a doctor, maybe it's a, it's a transparent thing, but from the research that we've done, you know, on this project over the last couple of years, it's clear that all of these standard clinical data um, is not something that they intuitively know how to understand. And so through a number of interviews and, 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 and prototypes, we've kind of come to some interesting um, understandings about this sort of space about um, taking the data we get from these traditional blood tests and making them useful to um, a consumer. 
Um, and so this really leads us to one of the classic questions when we ask in UX, what is the problem we are solving? Um, so for the biomarker product, um, the idea is that we're trying to understand, I'm trying to understand my blood test results. And one of the things we've learned by, by doing these interviews and talking to different stakeholders, um, doctors don't really believe it's their job to help their patients understand their blood test results. They need it useful for disease and they use it for managing the care. But ultimately, understanding the, the, you know, the full holistic view of their health data is not their job. Um, and so we, we believe that there still is a space for solving this problem. Um, the question then is sort of why does it matter? Well, biomarkers are the, you know, an axial metric for understanding and improving our health. Users, you know, if we think about it from the user's perspective, users want to understand their health journeys with actionable science. Um, and so a product like this and sort of products in the patient portal space should consider how we use these actionable metrics of biomarkers and we integrate them into the health journeys of our users and patients. And so I've been building a couple of versions of this. I can't really share the full version of it, but we've built a couple of aspects that I think that stand out. We realized that we needed amongst all of this biomarker data is we needed to first build an open source blood test um, database and in turn start to build some sort of lab results tool. Um, and so far we've built a research-backed database about blood biomarkers. You can find it on my GitHub. Um, and this sort of starts the journey in allowing to get um, consumers to, to sort of take their blood test results and match it with um, standards and clinical data. The second thing we built is an open source blood test tracker. Um, one of the things that resonates with users and around me is that they want something to sort of keep track of their blood tests over time. Um, and we're currently working on a more robust consumer-facing app for both understanding, analyzing, and tracking health biomarkers over time. Um, some of the lessons learned in this project, and we're still working on it, it's a, it's a startup, um, is that health apps need to consider the healthcare environment. Um, I mean, one of the things as an entrepreneur and investor I sort of realize is that oftentimes when we build health apps, we, first, we oftentimes start um, with the consumer-facing app but over time, to, to get a successful business model, we need to integrate with the larger healthcare ecosystem. We need to find a business model. And oftentimes we build you know, B2C first, and then over time we'll, we'll sort of pivot into a B2B model because that's where most of the money um, and the, the payment side of it is. Um, that's sort of the second thing with this app and other ones is there's a huge challenge around integrating um, healthcare data. And I think that's one of the things that, that we, we heard resonate in the cybersecurity talk. Getting all this data together is a, is a massive challenge. There's not, there are protocols, but ultimately the data is in a lot of different places and it's not easy to share and see that data, you know, the clinical data, your, your medical health records and stuff like that. Um, I've also found that from doing these interviews and building these prototypes, uh, continuous kind of uh, consensus from the users we've talked to is they want to have tools and information that's adapted and individualized to them. We want something that meets them in their health journey. Um, and this is a particularly massive challenge because we don't just want to build a product that kind of solves the problem in general. Um, it needs to be personalized. It needs to be adaptive. Um, and it needs to sort of have this ongoing um, interactive element. It's sort of new. Um, fortunately, AI, natural language processing, and all of these things enable it. We still as designers need to figure out how it fits with sort of the, um, the user-centric needs. Um, I wanna sort of skip through this five one a little bit. Five faster. more minutes, yeah. Cool, I'll just go through this one really fast and then, uh, and then I'll, I'll share a couple of things and then make sure we give enough time to everybody else. Um, so I have another open source project um, in Python called QS Ledger. Um, QS Ledger is this Python project that I, I discovered that it's great that we can track everything um, in a million different devices, but how do we pull the data back together? Um, and so this is a project that I've been ongoing and built for the last few years that allows us to bring all of the data together and then start to do personal data analysis, both visualization and some um, machine learning. Um, and so, yeah, it's more or less pointing at this, 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 this thing that I hear often and often that people want dashboards to their health. Um, and I think this is an interesting question that I, I think the health 4.0 sort of points to. We, wanna, we want personalization of, of our data in our health. Um, and so here's an example of a dashboard and a tracking system for flow um, that I find really actionable. Kind of the counterpoint, you've got burnout, 
and at the same time you've got this peak performance of flow. Um, anyway, so this matters because I think users really want to be, don't want to be told what to do. They want to interact with their data and make it useful. Um, and this sort of leads to my other point of saying our goal as designers is to enable sophisticated and personalized product usage and or skilled practices. Um, it's not just about intuitive beginner usage. We must enable sort of complex um, personalized usage as well. Um, this sort of leads to sort of the final point of this is that not only do I think it matters the uh, this idea of biomarkers in the clinical sense, but increasingly this idea of digital biomarkers. And this is, I think, a great definition of this is digital biomarkers are consumer generated physiological and behavioral measures collected through connected digital tools that can be used to explain, influence, or predict health related outcomes. Um, and I think this is one of the challenges we face in sort of this health 4.0 space is how do we take traditional, you know, gold standard biomarkers and use them with the digital footprint we create or the digital biomarkers. The idea that it not only matters how you sleep, it matters how you spend your time on the internet, on your phone, um, et cetera. Um, so let me just sort of conclude with a couple of, of broad thoughts. You know, you know, we're thinking about this community of practice around Health 4.0. Um, and for me as a UX guy and a product developer, this got me thinking about the characteristics of what I believe should be transformative apps. Um, or transformative health apps, meaning that we're not just building apps um, that sort of aim at the science, but we're, we're, that also aim at this user need to take them on a health journey, to understand themselves and to use their data. Um, and there's a couple of characteristics that I think are important for us as we build these, these apps and these solutions going forward. The first is I think it's central to consider the patients at the center. Um, no longer is it possible to expect our doctors to manage, our, manage every single patient. There's just there's just not gonna be enough of them. And so we need to build solutions that put patients at the center, um, helps them become decision makers. Of course, it needs to be science-backed. From researching and talking to, you know, a couple hundred different users, we see the science is really at the center of it. And I'm sure all of you believe in that. Um, Goal-oriented meaning that users should be able to set their own goals. Putting users as the actor and as the agent in their health is extremely important. So goal setting is important and a number of different theories sort of are, are foundational for behavioral change and goal setting. Um, data driven. The fact that we can track everything is great, but how do we use that data to create feedback loops. Um, as many of you have probably already been talking about this leads us to the idea that it needs to be personalized adaptive, etc. And ultimately what I think it means from a product perspective is that we're building apps that allow these sort of transformations over time. Um, so sort of to conclude, um, I think that we in the product development space not only need to think about users, but we also need to think about the technologies and what we're capable of doing. And so I think I have this great pleasure of sitting on both sides of doing the research with users and doctors, as well as being a technologist. Um, and this allows me to sort of think about um, the, entire, the entire ecosystem of everything. Um, and so ultimately, I think Health 4.0 and sort of the stuff we're talking about is an exciting space as we take a step forward of moving health from the healthcare environments into our own homes and into our own healthcare journeys. Um, awesome. Thank you. And thank God for the last slide. I let you talk. <laughs> uh, jokes apart. Thank you, Mark. Um, so may I suggest... Um, yeah. If you have, I can take one question now till I pull up Clifton's slides. Mark, it's really good to see you again. You must, yeah. have, been on the you must have been on the development cave. I have been building some stuff, my friends. Yeah, we, <laughs> we should get together and talk about what we're building and, and figure out how to collaborate. But yeah, I've spent a long time talking to customers. I think, I think you and I have talked about this a lot. It's just so, such an interesting process. We, as a developer, I always get obsessed with delivering products, but increasingly I, I, I walk back and talk to customers and it surprised me, especially this last one that I'm doing is just not really what I expected once you start asking questions from users and getting those assumptions up front before you invest in building the solutions is, is kind of the, the name of the game. Absolutely, that's where the juice happens. There's a magic, right? <laughs> yeah. That's great, it's good to hear. I've also been uh, dealing with a, uh, a number of challenges here in LA recently as well. Oh, the, of the stress that went up in my in my backyard. You know, when people are burning down different buildings, I, I should check my aura scores from just uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it's good. There, there have been some heart rate variability uh, changes for folks there uh, all over the right. It's, it's been that's what I'm really concerned about, right? You have really, I think it, this is the the levels of stress that we're facing as a society. They're going to be really epigenetic. Like I think this is going to be people are going to be passing this on to their offsprings at some point. Yeah, it's I mean, been I about three or four we, months. We have not. We've created a ton of stress, but we have not necessarily created digital tools that allow us to deal with that stress. I mean, we're still social creatures. As much as I wish I was a robot. Tabnam, <laughs> I saw your face when he made that comment. Uh, I see. A, I see a. a let's see, Shabnam, you you were asked that you kind of. I, I probably misspoke. She says I'm surprised to know the doctors don't think it's their responsibility to help interpret all the patient's biomarkers. Well, I would say from talking to doctors, I talked to, we, I even talked to you as well. I found that talking to specialists, they, they get a full blood test stuff, but they may only talk about the actionable ones for their particular issues. So like a cardiologist, they'll order a full panel, but they only care about two or three. Um, and this was an, a theme I've heard, we've heard a few times that you just can't really expect them to share uh, or expect them to spend the time. Um, you know, this is the big question of, how do we get optimal usage of time for these health interactions, right? So maybe I'll just do a bit of an intro because yeah. um, I don't have it in this document. Yeah. Um, what is going on with this? Go ahead. Like you can see the screen. Go back right? to the beginning. Um, yep. To follow on from what Mark was talking about, um, I'm, I'm looking at uh, emo emotion tracking, which is uh, kind of um, an extension of the, of the health tracking apps and maybe a more focused topic. Uh, as in the introduction, I, I've been doing the UX design and research for uh, over 20 years, and uh, I've worked with a number of like governments around the world, the States, Canada, and UK, Spain, and and I've also uh, worked with a lot of major brands um, like I Ikea and, and uh, Nokia and Vodafone and, and you know, European Space Agency, um, the, the kind of national airline and telco here, uh, a lot of e-commerce and, and the project I worked with um, Namrata on uh, was a health project uh, looking at uh, children, um, infants basically, uh, new parents and, and providing them health tips primarily in South Asia. Uh, I've worked on a couple others, like an open source uh, patient records system. Um, and yeah, so anyway, uh, if you wanna look at my profile, it's this designservices.io uh, at the bottom or on my LinkedIn profile, you'll see um, a bunch of things that I've done. Um, so this is a kind of a culmination or a, an offshoot of the research I was doing with the university here. Uh, I was working with Trinity University, if anyone's familiar with it, in Dublin. And uh, I essentially was leading up a UX uh, team for researching things to do with learning and innovation tech. So it's a learning innovation uh, lab. We did a bunch of service design transformation, um, that sort of thing for small startups as well as large uh, companies. So my research was an internal project into essentially emotion tracking through wearables. So um, yeah, I'll just go ahead uh, and advance in the presentation. That's a, I, I don't have a slide explaining myself. Um, so yeah, it's working. So the first uh, bit that I'm going to do here is on um, the sensors and uh, essentially what what the sensors are kind of uh, capable of, uh, of looking at. Um, so we all know these kind of Fitbit uh, activity trackers, and this is the sort of thing that Mark was uh, referring to. You can put them in your shoes, you can put them you know, on your chest to monitor your, uh, your respiration, body movements, obviously location and time. Uh, there's, there's the blood sugar, there's skin conductivity, which, uh, conductivity, which can tell you um, which can tell you quite a few things actually, but uh, in particular, um, a bunch of these can can indicate stress or anxiety or perhaps just emotional changes in general. So um, 
if you look at the market of what we have, the health data and the apps surrounding it, it's kind of too much to handle. There's it's large scales, complexity is overwhelming. There's a lot of errors, uh, movement patterns, and uh, uh, are difficult to to get the data out of. Um, pe people have a hard time managing the data, and then there's also just reading it. Um, so. Yeah, but the thing I want to focus on is the kind of mental health aspect, which is uh, quite complex or uh, easier said than done, as I put there. So this is a kind of more traditional one of tr trigger tracking. You write down kind of what happened and how you felt. And, you know, there's kind of these therapeutic approaches, diaries. Your goal is to feel better, essentially, or to, to um, I, I don't know, I, I adjust your mental health. So, um I, I guess what we can find is like with the face tracking here in this example is that all people have a bit of an emotional fingerprint that is sort of unique to them. Um, and and that, that shows up in the, the, the brain waves as, or the, the electrical activity in the brain as well. Um, but they're, they're kind of inaccurate, um, despite the fact that we have unique emotions, they don't always portray themselves the same across all the people. There are consistencies but you really need to know more than that in order to, to find out. So oh, there's that blue bar. But anyway, the, the, the thing that I think it's working towards, and I, I think a few other people have mentioned this, is there's a personalized uh, way of doing it. So I included the Apple Watch because that's, you know, a kind of you know, Dick Tracy and so on. That, that gives you a sense of personality and the way that people grow attached to these objects. And... Um, and then the, the personal individual or unique behavior is, is actually more accurate and, and easier to get a, a, guy, a judge or a guideline from. Um, so, so what is emotion tracking, right? Um, so it's effective computing is, is, is the topic that's been around for quite a while. And so you've got these things called sentiment or mood or, or emotion. And then you have the aspects between that of perception and your synthesis uh, understanding uh, what the machine is, uh, is maybe reflecting of you or mediation between different people. And that, those are the kind of major topics of this, of this area of, uh, of research. Um, so one of the big ones, most popular probably is the face tracking. You know, you, there are some systems like this FACS system um, but again, the patterns are unique to each person. Uh, faces have a, a standard set of emotions and they're recognized based on these libraries like this FACS one. But like I said earlier, they're not entirely accurate without the context. If you don't, if you don't have a, say, a, a background of a, a, of a fairground or, or a beach or a funeral, you, you can misread the emotions and, and it could be one when it's actually the other. And so having having some context of what that person is doing, uh, you know, as opposed to just on a white background, it, it, it provides much more, especially if you have that, the, the, the sort of semantics that, that the person may be uh, talking about or the words that they're using or descriptions. So um, there's also body tracking. So you can get uh, emotion detection from these postural uh, cues, walking, sitting, um, it, it, it's actually really something that we are, are good at recognizing as humans. So uh, we naturally pick up on this changes in the face, the, the eyes changing slightly, and, and obviously the way people walk and how they, how they express themselves physically. Um, and so the machines can use those libraries essentially to, to map those to, diff to different types. And we're also very good at voices, you know, particularly voices that we, we know, um, you know, close people or, or celebrities or whatever. We can really get a, a feel for what, they, what their emotions are. Ironically, though, we can't really describe it because emotions vary so much from person to person. Um, but but we know how to respond to them. And so this is what we're trying to teach, uh, essentially, computers or machines. And then we can get into other stuff like the brain tracking that was mentioned earlier on today, uh, or looking at this uh, signals in the neurological uh, <laughs> capacity of, of people's brains. And there's been a lot of stuff about that in the news. Um, and the interesting thing I 
think there is that these are sort of unseen patterns that we haven't seen. We, we, they're not face gestures. They're not body gestures. They're not things that we're familiar with for, uh, for like, uh, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. So this is all brand new and, and it is quite interesting. And, and what I, what I like about it is that the emotions are, are based around memories um, that, that are created for those, for those emotions. So when you're very young, you touch something that's hot, you remember, don't, don't touch that, that really hurts. And it, it gets kind of permanently printed into the brain. And the, the actual patterns that, that, get, that get printed, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but the, they, they come back again and again whenever you have those emotions. But for everyone, they're different. So the patterns that, the, that this man and this woman have would be different even in the same emotional experience. Um, and then another thing that we can do, which is quite interesting, is tracking the behavior and uh, exceptions to the behavior and variations in the behavior with keystrokes on the computer, the way you navigate things on the computer, how you scroll, your eye tracking is obviously something that's, that's come up a lot as well. So these provide a lot of insight. They can tell whether you're male or female. They can tell kind of what age you are based on how you type. It's quite, it's, it's quite fascinating and a little bit scary but you know I think we need to know that this stuff is available and that you know we can use it for things that we find valuable um, so getting to the data um, what is our emotion data so very often there's this kind of contradiction between you know our shared data and the, the need for personal privacy and um, you know, and particularly when you're tracking things, it's very valuable to compare yourself to other people and as well to look at your region or to share the data with your doctor. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for having these medical records or, or, or the biomarkers that uh, Mark was talking about. And essentially, what is the value and does the value outweigh the risk? And so there's, there's obviously a big security question there, but the the thing is, is that our, our, our need to share this data and to, to find other people's data is actually stronger than our desire for privacy. And so that's why more and more people put whatever they want on Facebook and, and, and LinkedIn, et cetera, you know, wh wherever you have a public profile. So um, the interesting thing, though, is that you have a lot of data complexity, as I mentioned earlier. So your um, your apps can be overwhelming and the data that you, sifting through it can be quite difficult and it's, it's hard to cope. It's this com, amount of complexity versus the amount of coping that you can, you can do with it and how, uh, how, much you, how much you value the personal growth. And so there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle of all these things and, and the amount of time you spend doing it as well. So um, and, and what this leads to is, I think, a, a type of emotional equity um, that, that is perhaps, perhaps overlooked uh, quite often in the IT space, um, or, or, or perhaps even, I mean, it's more familiar in branding and media and these kind of emotion-centric uh, areas, but particularly in tech, we're kind of lacking that. And, and, and honestly, some of the logical uh, value of... of uh, of our equity is all is also um, is also kind of missing, and I think that this is this is showing to be quite a big thing, you know, with the with the value of um, uh, of your data on Google or on Facebook or or in Apple's services. These these big corporations they're playing games and making money from it, so there obviously is quite a bit of value there. But the interesting thing is that perhaps the value is more for us than for the service. And so we have to weigh the, the value of, you know, an app that doesn't provide you any emotional or logical value, you won't use, you know, whereas something that like Facebook will show you puppies and friends of family and so on and so forth. And that gives you the value that you're willing to trade off a bit of your emotional equity. But I, th I, th I think that the, this is going to become a bigger and bigger topic is essentially your, your equity surrounding your profile and what is your real value, the value of your own data. So um, 
we're looking at health records now. So I'll just get into a bit of the drier stuff, but it's, you know, important because that's the discussion that's on the table today. So um, official records are a little bit complex and diverse. They're all over the place. Having worked on one or two systems and having seen a bunch of them, I can say they're all different. You know, they're unique to each hospital or, 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 or laboratory or you know they don't they don't connect to other digital systems easily i mean you're not going to sync your phone with whatever patient record system is available um apple health is probably the best example we have of something that we can use personally but it's not able to share data and it definitely doesn't have any mood or emotion related tracking so um tracking systems have a long way to go and i think that's the conversation we've been having all day really um so what else do we have? We have personal records, um, you know, things like diaries, things like this, a coloring sort of option where you're, you're, you're color coding how good your days are. And, and they do have digital counterparts. There are, there are nice apps that are made to do things almost exactly like this, but they're not compatible with the, with the systems. They're usually not compatible with like even that Apple Health or, or any of the kind of health records programs that would run on your devices. So uh, we, again, we've got a long way to go in terms of, you know, that personal element, that side of it. Um, and then we have these online records and these are incomplete identities. You know, there's only a very small amount of data in there, your, your age, your height, your weight, and they don't change. They don't track those over time. So they're not really data tracking services unless they're tracking your photo usage or something but other than that there's very there's very little you you might be able to get semantic value out of the posts that you make but they would have to be more personal posts and you might be able to track that so you know there is a chance that apps within the facebook or other ecosystems you know could could track um, your body mass index or heart rate or something, and it could be part of your digital profile in these environments. It's just at this time, it isn't. So we'd need some sort of standards if we were gonna create these, you know? Um, so going back in time, we've also got a bunch of non-digital records, which are actually, I would say, more valuable than, than, than not valuable. You know, a lot of them aren't digitized. Um, but they have population data uh, and um, census data or whatever. They have a lot of different ways of, of looking at the history of our, our, our societies uh, in these old kind of records and they could be extracted. Um, and and you, for example, you could, you could cross-reference the data with when a crop was introduced in a society or different types of trade or urban development or whatever and, and get some insight into the health of the people uh, based on w whatever elements you use. Once it was digital, you could essentially manipulate it or, or see through it in, at different angles. So now, now we're looking at this kind of identity cultures and this is kind of the, the sort of crux of it. I think if we're talking about designing for users is we need to think about the different identities that that revolve around the products, but also uh, the people them, themselves. So, um, you know, like a typical product identity, like I'm a Nike person or I'm a Ford guy or whatever it is, you know, that doesn't reflect well on, on health data and it's not really an appropriate place, uh, you would say. Even Apple, the health app, probably doesn't meet any sort of medical requirements and probably never will. Um, so uh, we have a lot of these lifestyle products, but they may not be stable or secure enough. And I would say that this is probably one of the main reasons why, you know, the, the, the technology is too isolated and compartmentalized. It needs to be that sort of network thing um, that the previous speaker was, was referring to. You need, you, so, you know, the, these kind of devices only would like a, meet a limited need set even in the medical products so you need to look at the full service lifestyle of all the different devices that are connected and where does where does medical or health tracking stuff fit into that um, you know your car your computer laptop phone tv they're all forming this larger digital identity and 
to look at it from a systems design perspective is probably the way you'd have to go. And obviously a lot of people, including the, the talk over lunch, they're going along this, this path. Um, a couple of negatives that uh, need to be, be maybe made uh, clear. Uh, positivism is, is a huge bias in the, in the tech industry in general but also with the users. So uh, new design elements will create a more positive response than, than, than the old ones. The, the keyboard that comes up from the bottom of the phone is kind of a negative vibe. It doesn't feel so good. Um, so this sort of design trends is, is, is blanketing or ignoring the actual emotions because you're just going for that response rather than their needs or their values. It's essentially a short-lived shelf life for features which affects the production and the entire uh, industry in a lot of ways. So uh, another thing that is uh, critical to uh, producing sort of emotion, um, emotion tracking or health, emotional well-being apps and services is this advocacy culture where we're um, where, where the design is, is, is sold and, and planned in kind of an ephemeral sense and it's not it's not done in an actual sense. They're, 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 it's not done like architecture, it's done more like marketing. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that leaves little consideration for the emotional needs of the users or use the architecture metaphor, uh, you know, the inhabitants of a building. It, you, you know, that's one of the core goals of architecture. Um, and so, you know, it leads to a substantial lack of accuracy in the products that we that we build, and it drastically affects planning and execution, and arguably is is one of the reasons that only you know one out of ten startups uh, continues. So um, another another traction point is the is the buzzword based investment system, uh, technological trends. It's, it is a fundamentally sort of flawed way of planning products. And I, and I say this having made many. So the buzzword-based trend culture is, is essentially uh, one technology leading into the next, but unless you support that previous technology, the, the, the second one can't follow on from it. And so advancement and progress is very slow. It's, it's, it's not continual. We're not building upon blockchain. We're coming along with something to replace it. And that, that, be, that becomes a big problem, as well as the sort of popularity politics with you know, 3D printing is going out. So we're going to call it form modeling or something. And that changes everything because those devices are no longer as successful as the previous ones. Uh, essentially annihilating an industry before it has a chance to uh, to start. So uh, how do we do how how do we do this? How do we get into the emotion centric apps and services? Well, process driven. Lots of different processes. These are sort of very successful processes from pretty successful agencies. You'll notice the patterns are all the same. There's kind of a discover research phase. There's an explore and concept phase. You know, and you get into implementation and it's important to just recognize the fundamental concepts in all these design processes because everyone has their own one, but a lot of them follow the same sort of patterns. And, and, and also I'd like to point out that maybe not everything is there, especially for something as critical and safety oriented as health, that we may need to increase or, or, or refine design processes to, to actually get there. Um, and market behavior is a big thing that's still going on, still big influence, ethnography, essentially. Uh, those approaches have been moved into service design to allow for the systems-based perspectives. But it doesn't, these, these ethnography studies or user studies, in this sense anyway, do not give a clarity on the actual needs and interests. It, it's, it's not essentially emotion-centric designing. It's, uh, it's touch point and, and it's allowing you to, 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 to scope out a bigger structure for your product or service, but it doesn't give uh, much on detail. So um, another, another focus point that a lot of people talk about is data-driven design, um, but it is kind of only the tip of the iceberg. It doesn't show insights into user behavior uh, unless you already have some criteria from which to look at that behavior as user behavior. So 
it requires a lot of additional research as a result. It, and it cannot identify the underlying cultural, social, organizational structures. And this is very important for, for medical or, or for health in general. You know, you need to, you need to look at those things in order and, and, and very often data-driven um, design or data-driven projects don't, don't, uh, don't identify those. They, they can't see them almost. And, and as well, the mental models are way down at the bottom. The personal perspectives that people have, you can't, you can, you can, can probably never visualize from data-driven design. So what I see as the solution or anyway, what my recommendation might be is that, you know, these things need to happen from a personal need. You know, there's a, there's a doctor who can't communicate something to his patients because they're way over there. And we're seeing that because of this, this COVID or the Corona situation. We, we've, got, we've got a lot of people who are suddenly distanced and we've got nothing for that. We don't know how to even do that. And I think it's this personal need that we're all sort of looking at. So, you know, people make stuff in their garages and their attics and their basements and, and in their home offices. And that's, solving a personal need like like mark has done with his tracking stuff you know he didn't see it on the market so he made it and this is very often where success comes from in the it industry is two guys make google and one guy makes uh, Flickr and blah 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 sure they become successful products but in the beginning you know there's only a handful of them that really want this thing so um yeah, you can follow your ethos, obviously, the pathos or the, or the logos. Now, I included those because I want to focus on that pathos, which is the emotional appeal. You know, what, what is it that, you know, your emotion senses that make you want to have an emotional tracker or something that, that, that follows your emotions and is able to give you feedback and perhaps provide you with some, I don't know, happiness or satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that is, that is the summary in, in general of, of what I have to say today. So I'm happy to like take any questions if, if, that, uh, if that's a good time for that, yeah. Thank you, Clifton. Um, so yeah, if you have any question, you can unmute yourself and ask the question or use the chat as usual. Firstly, great presentations, Clifton. I heard you after so many years. This is awesome, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, we can have two questions now and then the rest will go in the break room and we'll start the next one in five minutes. So yes, Mark. So I guess I'm, I'm, I feel like you're hinting at the idea that this is a kind of neuromarketing thing we're doing for UX. Is that kind of what you're talking about? That this emotional aspect is something we can use from a UX perspective? Because I kind of, there's a lot of stuff going on in your talk, but I was kind of wondering about that is like, is this a neuromarketing? Is this an emotional tracking thing that informs us in the user design side? Right, so I, I did a bunch of research and wrote a long report uh, on this, and so I'm happy to share that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have a link handy, but um, um, you know, I can if people want to email me or or Namrata maybe wants to share it around afterwards. That would probably answer those kind of questions. But essentially, we're looking in the context of the report I did anyway is is work um, emotions within a working professional context, and because a lot of um, executives actually um, end up easily frustrated and stressed out and kind of you know killing themselves, not not physically but metaphorically because because their emotions are out of check. They did they did. They didn't come through the IT system, and so they're not familiar with the way that those teams operate, and very often they're coming from a different world. They're coming from the business analyst sort of uh, side of things, and that can, that can lead to them being incredibly stressed out in a field where it's all numbers and dashes and things. So, you know, this is, this is why we were looking at that for, for the corporate market, um, was, was to essentially help people be aware now now being aware of your emotions is one thing but then i also you know recommended some results like the cats like watching cats and looking at nature videos all this natural organic stuff is actually really really therapeutic you know even if it's just on youtube it's still mind-blowingly better for you than stressing out over your document if so this is one of the main reasons that people are distracted by cats jumping up and down or waterfalls or whatever their personal taste is because those things are actually very calming and 
the patterns in nature. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of science there about the patterns in nature that, that we, we interpret and we understand to be our universe. And, the, the, you know, from the, the facial expressions are part of it, but, you know, so are leaves blowing in the wind. And, and those, are the, those are the things that you can, you know, people will put on meditation tapes, for example, and that's, that's one option. There's a, there's a bunch of them that I put into my report, but, you know, the, those kind of things are what, what a, an emotion tracking system that wants to provide you with some sort of solutions might do. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I, I've done a number of emotion tracking studies and stuff. I find it to be a very difficult data point to get reliable signals from. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the big challenge is like, I think emotions are not even necessarily a real thing. There might even be a philosophical question here about how many emotions are just actually quantifiable and how many of them are sort of imbued with culture and language and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, you'll notice like full disclosure here, most of the emotion models that they use are based on six, like six, five or six, and you just go up and down those kind of yeah. different emotions. And, yeah. and it's how much of each one, and they kind of do it that, like these star graphs. And, and honestly, this is a bit hocus pocus. Like there are some going in this direction, some going in that direction. But if you take one of them and you translate it into another language, it simply just doesn't hold anymore and we've got so many languages we've got so many people and they all have emotions so i don't think we're even looking in the right direction in terms of quantifying the data like it's i don't know where it would be but you know it's it's the semantic value is actually much more accurate so what they get out of your writing or what they can get out of your words is 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 much more likely to be accurate in terms of the emotions you're experiencing than what they get from your face and stuff but there are exceptions to that like effectiva is like a billion dollar multi-billion dollar company now and what they do is they test video games and advertisements and films and movies and so on and that stuff you know they see what you're watching and when the blue thing falls off the fridge or whatever everybody laughs at the same time all the time and they know it's a good emotion right and so that's how they're classifying the emotions is in a in a certain context they've got your attention you know whereas if your attention is on an office document or something or just walking down the street there's no context for your emotions and so that doesn't provide that sense of quant quantitative uh, data, right? Like you're really just dealing with the qualitative in a lot of ways. You can get the user feedback afterwards and have them explain to you how they think they were feeling. But of course, words don't always describe these things. So, mm. Thank you, Kristen.